0: in addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, remembering the life and times of Of Karen Wampler. And when we originally interviewed Karen back in the fall of 2019, which would turn out to be her last interview that she would give, we were excited to tell you about the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy. And that's what she'll be talking about today. But we lost Karen on January 2nd of this year while she was in Australia traveling with her husband Richard and her granddaughter. Let me tell you a little bit about MFT pioneer Karen Wampler. She served most recently as a professor and chaired the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at Michigan State. Prior to Michigan State, she was a professor of MFT, a department chair and a program director, and the Hutchinson's professor at Texas Tech. She was an assistant and associate professor at UGA, that's the University of Georgia, and during her tenure there, she developed the CoAMPTHI accredited doctoral program. Dr. Wampler was also the founder and first coordinator of the interdisciplinary MFT for C- Certificate Program at UGA, a collaboration with the university's MFT, social work, and counseling programs. She earned her bachelor's in sociology from Indiana University, a master's in sociology from University of Pennsylvania, and a doctorate in MFT from Purdue University. And what she will be talking about with me today, including looking back at her longevity and career in the field of marriage and family therapy. Her last project, uh, one which she speaks of great passion about, she served as the editor-in-chief of the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy, a four-volume work uh, just getting ready to be released this week by Wiley. The Handbook, as I said, grew into four volumes consisting of 106 chapters and more than 2,700 pages written by 292 authors and co-authors, of which I'm proud to be one. Uh, She's an amazing contributor to the field, and here you have, in her own words, Dr. Karen Wampler. So pleased to be joined on the AMFT podcast today by someone that has kind of seen and done it all within the field of couple and family therapy. I'm talking about Dr. Karen Wampler. Karen, so good to have you. Uh, We're going to talk about the Handbook of Systemic Therapy later on, but first, I want to know your origin story. Um, I want to know how you got interested in MFT um, and what initially attracted you to systemic thinking.
1: Well, Eli, thanks thank you so much for having me. Um, Yes, I started out. I was a sociology major because I liked a lot of things, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And people kept saying, what are you going to do with it? And I'd say, I had no idea. And they'd say, social work? I said, "Not, not a social worker. So I went and got my master's. I was ABD in sociology. And I was interested, most interested in family sociology. And I then decided I wanted to finish a PhD in some kind of clinical area. Because it would fit better with having a family, because I uh, was having, I had just had, Richard and I had just had our daughter Leah, and uh, we were finishing up. But anyway, so Richard had a job at IU Purdue Fort Wayne, and we got a newsletter. I knew I didn't want clinical psychology because it was just like all individual. We got a newsletter from Purdue, and it talked about this new Wallace Denton talked about this new program called marriage and family therapy, and it was just from there it was just absolutely perfect. Give
0: us a, a timeline here. We're in the, This was it? like 19. I started in 1975,
1: 1975. commuted from Fort Wayne to uh, Lafayette. I'd, I'd spent you know stay overnight and everything, and uh, I came the same year as Doug Sprinkle, so I had the advantage too of seeing the changes in the purdue program because wallace denton had kind of inherited it and moved it to um home you know in the day we called it home economics a child and family department and i uh wallace of course was amazing and uh charles figley was there at the time and then doug comes the same year i do and i got to watch what he did in terms of literally Uh, They had a child development center and we the clinic was going to be in what what used to be the old child development center saw him clean out the closets so that we could do observation and saw how he and Wallace and how Doug entered the system and how they worked out the curriculum and and Worked together. So it was just uh, a very special time to be at Purdue and to be at the end you know beginning of all that
0: we will talk about Doug He is you were his absolute first student and I was one of his last and uh, Doug passed away in August of 218 and is is sorely missed. Uh, You know interesting as well when you think of Karen Wampler the Wamplers is a duo her husband Richard. What was Richard's uh, background? Who found MFT first you or him?
1: Uh, Me (laughs) and he was a a physiological he studied rats brains in rats did brain research on rats I mean you know like uh eating, drinking, thirst, whatever. Got his PhD at University of Pennsylvania, and I was very much a stay-at-home uh, wife uh, with our, our kids and everything. And, uh, but eventually, he got tired of teaching four sections of introductory psych a year, I mean, a semester, and then, uh, anyway, got into uh, more clinical work. And when I moved to Georgia, he followed me, gave up a tenured professor job, Followed me to University of Georgia and went to school in social work, and so he got his training. But luckily, he ended up with his internship at a family counseling center with MFTs, very strong MFTs in Georgia, very, uh, as supervisors. So he uh, uh, got systemic thinking that way.
0: When you were coming of age in the profession, you said 1975 is really the golden age of family therapy. Uh, both clinically and from a research base, who who were the people you admired early on in your career?
1: Well, Doug was certainly one, and uh, Charles Figley. Um, the, the, uh, because we would still see the, like, Whitaker, Mnuchin, uh, all those people that were still there, the, the uh, Gurneys, you know, uh, the... Uh, relationship enrichment people you could go to conferences and see them so it was very exciting and reading I mean you know Eli what it's like to get that shift to thinking systems and then you can't go back
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I always say once you think systemically, you can never think another way. And, and I always thought that way. I just didn't have the language yeah. till I was in an MFD program.
1: I didn't I can't say I always thought that way. And but it was like family sociology had been my, you know, major kind of thing in as an undergraduate and a graduate. And I'd even done researches on in an honors thesis and so on and my master's too but it wasn't quite right and so did the the whole perspective the process perspective and change perspective and mft had uh i I didn't get systemic thinking till then yeah
0: yeah Yeah. but you surely got it and one of the things when, when we we talk about doug you and doug have many similarities in the sense that because you were such a purveyor of the field you were never really associated with any model or specific discipline, you really ha- got to see how the field evolved. So I'm wondering uh, from where we were in 1975 to where we are now in 2020, uh, what, what are the biggest changes do you think in the field? And we'll talk in two levels, kind of clinically and uh, from a research base.
1: So when I came, I mean, I had a very strong research background because I was trained in sociology. And for that, I've been very grateful. And in the early days, we didn't get much research training in our uh, education programs. Um, And I've seen that strengthened tremendously over the years in terms of how sophisticated people are. And I love seeing our field, I really think, is unique as it's developed and that when we have training for our own training programs instead of just borrowing from other disciplines, the commitment people have to research and clinical work and the integration of the two, I do not see the separation. Uh, clinicians, I've given many research based presentations at AMFT. They are excited about it, they want it, they are hungry for it, they want to think about it. Um, I have found most MFTs to be quite analytical, and part of that is just thinking systems and being able to look go at lo- different levels, and it fits perfectly. And the kind of research I think we need is close to the ground observational research. You know, as you know, I've always promoted that kind of aspect. We can't. We learn, We know as clinicians that how people talk about what they. To develops a lot over therapy, and a lot of what we're doing is helping them change or think through and, and new narratives develop. And we work a lot and we help them work a lot with uh, what what they look like, what people look like, their're nonverbals like John Gottman you know studied for for so long. So I think that's a unique aspect of MFT that is underappreciated how we as clinicians go into every single session as a researcher.
0: When you think of also training, I mean, you've been affiliated with University of Georgia, Texas Tech, Michigan State, where you retired a couple of years ago. You're the busiest person in retirement, I know, by the way. But mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but you've also you've been fundamental in training uh, the next generation of MFT educators and researchers in these doctoral programs. Where do you think we are as a state of, in as far as doctoral education um, from where you started? And what do we need to do to make sure we are training uh, the next crop of MFTs that are going to go on to do original research versus farming it out to other disciplines? I mean, I guess I feel like the idea to do the work, clinical work will always be there. Master's programs are healthy, um, but I'm, you know, I have... Little worry about doctoral programs in the future and producing quality scholars that are going to go out and follow in your footsteps, follow in Doug Sprinkle's footsteps. What are your thoughts on that?
1: We have a very, very demanding training model. And I think it's the thing that absolutely makes our discipline different. We, uh, and the trouble is, it's a very expensive training model. It's very expensive in terms of faculty time, faculty investment and student investment, and so it's hard from the beginning to keep a balance between the clinical work and the research work. And I think that, as I said, I found MFTs to really be, there's not an inconsistency between research and and clinical work, and I've seen them integrate the work. They don't know so much that they're integrating it, but they are researchers. Uh, The problem is, I love our training model. I think it makes all the difference that we have people behind the mirror, that we have video, that we have feedback. We're collegial from the beginning. There's no way to hide out in an MFT training program. Faculty, too, you can't hide out because you have to be. It's clear from the beginning that the faculty have clay feet uh, in terms of clinical work and that we all have our struggles with it and we all have successes and so on. So it's, um, it's just, it's a, the, the, the tension is, and I haven't figured this out, Eli, the tension is I feel strongly about our training model. I think the co- and especially the cohort model, both on research and clinical side, the trouble is it's extremely expensive and it's extremely difficult to exchange, uh, explain to administrators why we have to have it this way.
0: Yeah, I feel the same way because a lot of MFT programs are housed within, you know, human development, child studies, family studies and they don't have clinical components. So to describe to the stakeholders why what we do is so important and uh, you know, I'm you're speaking to the choir, you cannot separate The the clinical and the research, I don't know about you, but everything I've wanted to study came out of my direct interaction with clients in the therapy room, which is beautiful. But not everybody thinks that way.
1: That's right. And so what happens is when we get it, when we publish, and when we get grants, and the reason we're getting the publications and the grants, uh, especially the grants, and the grant-funded research is because we have that combination of observation close to the ground, finding new things. We're in, um, it's like astronomy in terms of we have to observe, 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 and then write, and we also need to do it in teams in order to make it work. The problem is the clinical work is so demanding on faculty and students in any kind of program, doctoral or masters, that it's a, it's a crisis. It's always on the front burner. You can't exactly say uh, that I've got a, a client that needs to go into treatment and say, well, I'm not going to work on this for another week. And so you, the, the the research part gets put off, puts on the back burner. So it's very difficult to balance. Um,
0: I mean, I, I'm a you know I have my foot one put in advocacy and work in the national level with AMFT, and I'm a a full professor now, and I feel this dialectic tension. You are someone who's been an incredibly productive scholar, administrator. How, how did you find that balance over the years? And what tips? Because, you know, we'll have, we'll have a lot of uh, academic MFTs listen to this podcast as well as practitioners. How, how did you find that balance over the years of of, of staying true to all those different areas?
1: Uh on accident, <laughs> I wish I were like Fred Piercy and you know write every day and organize and everything like that. It was more always for me um, caring so much about the questions, caring so much about the the problems, and uh, and then it helps to to focus yourself and write grants because it really tr- you really have to explain why you think what you do and make a case for it and then when you get a grant, that kind of uh, makes everything on the front burner that way. But it is, it, I, I can't say exactly how I did it. Um, working with graduate students, having the privilege of working with amazing students, both masters and PhD students, um, that always motivated me, uh, and I know it motivates most MFT faculty. And it's not like using the student to do research, it's doing research with the student in a collegial manner. Sometimes, yes, it's your own project that you're leading, other times it's the student's project and they're in the lead. So that makes a big difference. But how I do it in terms of did it in terms of time, I'm not that organized about
0: it. <laughs> We've had Fred on the show, and he is very disciplined, in and in, 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 in how he does it. And I don't, and that works for him. But I'm more like you. I, it, different things take priorities at different times. But I, I do think you're also tapping into what has made it, you know, your career so special. It is these collaborations you've had, much like you had with Doug. Doug gives you credit. He would not have known what common factors was. You introduced him to that, and much like you took that on to the countless students, we could. Uh, list of who's who of people in the field now that has, karen has worked with and trained and mentored um i'm also curious you and I, the name of it is escaping me but you and adrian and your husband richard wrote this pretty influential paper for jmft recently about the the state of the field and where we're going uh, tell me what it was to your experience of kind of writing that and uh, kind of the main main points of that article for, for some of our listeners that have not read that. And if you haven't, if you're not a journal reader, it really contextualizes a lot of where we're at and where we need to go as a field.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, that uh, that JMFT article was important. And then I also wrote chapter one, of volume one of the handbook with Joellen Patterson. And that uh, kind of expands on some of the ideas. I really... We, as a field, have not told our own story. And I do feel that we've taken, a, as a field, especially on the research side, a more victim stance where we're trying to prove that we uh, are worthy instead of that we belong at the table, instead of appreciating and talking with each other about what we know and what we do. We tell each other the stories, and the people are doing incredible work but we haven't told the story because we're trying to fit into uh, a psychology model that does not work for us. So, So for me, it's like telling the story. That was what that article was about, and it's also about what chapter one is out. And then... To have opportunities to talk with each other, which is just, as you know, a delight. You get around other systems thinkers. It's incredible.
0: Oh, relational people. That's what we Relational
1: people. You know each other, and you, uh, you just find such a relief to doing it. And um, to tell the story, and then to wrestle, actually, face-to-face, or email-to-email, or Skype, to, you know, WhatsApp, or whatever, wrestle with some of the issues that we haven't dealt with. Like, for example, the definition of family and we, the fact that we haven't talked enough about it, we don't have a clear narrative as a field, then we can't explain it to anybody else. A family th- a physician never has to explain why he or she s- sees individuals. Now, they may have to need to explain why they don't see families, but we've never explained as family therapists that we see individuals, couples. We see all kind of constellations, and that's the point. We are flexible, that's our gift. We don't articulate that.
0: As Murray Bowen said, you could be a family therapist with one person in the room. It's all about the way of thinking, but you're, you're pointing out something exactly. uh, huge and critical that we do a great job. I've never met an MFT, no one on this podcast has ever, I use the word passionate with every guest, but it's true. People love talking about systems, but we have done a poor job compared to the other mental health disciplines of telling the world what we that's do. That's right. Still, Yes,
1: And so we don't explain that we're not a modality. And, of course, that got emphasized because in psychiatry, which is a very established uh, you know, profession, psychology, what's unique there about family therapy is that you see people together. That's not un- what's unique about systemic family therapy. And if you look at the, the keynote speaker on uh, earlier this week, the first keynote speaker, who talked about her own therapy... She was she was talking about relational therapy, but she went by herself. Nobody in that room in the plenary, that all those number large, you know, hundreds of people in that room, had any doubt that that was systemic family therapy. And uh, yet, we have not explained that. And so there is the issue about, uh, you know, what we do. That we're not a modality. It's not who's in the room that's important. We don't explain our definition of family. People will say, well, I don't have a family. Well, everybody has a family. But we go with how people define their own family. You know, I've had several mothers in my time. Only one of them was biological. You know what I'm saying, Eli.
0: Adoptive kid, yes.
1: And then the other piece we haven't gotten together and talked through, even though we're totally capable of this, is the political ramifications of the word family. Because family it has you know it's a conservative liberal kind of gets it's it's gets into the political aspects and um uh we need to talk through how we have a narrative around that and how we navigate that and we have major uh social justice political issues within the field that we deal with pretty well actually but we haven't talked about how we deal with them because there's a range and we hit it in training we hit it with how we deal with clients uh I remember one of my, first, my very first clients turned to me and she said, uh, you know, we were. it was really, uh, you know, we, the, the, everything was going really well. She turned to me and she said, Karen, are you a Christian? And I was new in my training and I just froze. And I thought and I said, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm an atheist, and, which I was at the time. And she thought and she stopped and she looked and then she said, God can work through anybody. And it, we have those with every client that walks in the room. We have cultural, social issues. We have them with, e- with each other, and we have them with uh, payers, insurers, everything else, with the outside world. We have the ability to talk about those and how we handle them, systemic. And so I'm so excited that, that, that we have the stories you talk to any MFT. Um, so, and then the research. The research we define and research it's if it's a family research thing we're again going back to defining sessions as when there's more than one person in the room that's not how we do it so we've not defined what i in the olden days i call it independent variable we haven't defined properly what we are actually doing and we are capable of that the new people coming up are absolutely incredible in terms of their training the kind of work they do the breath and their connections with other fields, because you have to connect with people in epidemiology and physiology and everything, and they're doing that. They're also doing international work. And Eli, you and I have had the experience every time of people coming back, uh, they're on research teams, and the, the team, you know, usually psychiatrists, psychologists, maybe a social worker or two will say, oh my gosh, we need you. Where we have need somebody like you that has that family systems perspective. Again, it's a narrative, and if we we're not going to figure it out without talking to each other about it. And so I, what I, frustrates me about the field, is that we have not. These conferences need to be about talking with each other. They do not need to be about us sitting in the seat and listening. We, it, it's just you know we can have some of that, but we need. Uh, And the work that people are doing is absolutely phenomenal. I mean you know it and
0: people still love seeing the work I mean again you're preaching to the choir I think uh, when you want to come to a conference you want to see the work being done you want to be able to talk about it, it is the throwback to the excitement and when you entered the field into the 70s into you know my career is now 20 years into my career that I remember reading about it. And, and and that is something that we can still do so it's it's sharing our excitement it is as, as you said so eloquently it's collaborating with the other people and w- that's the only way I Know to get other people to know what we do is to show our work and collaborate and let people know about it, which is kind of the origin of this um, handbook of systemic family therapy. So it's a beautiful segue into the goals of that. So tell us again. You've been retired for a few years, but you have are still passionate and active uh, in every. Part of MFT and AMFT. So talk about the origin of the project and uh, it's really become something that I think is going to be big for AMFT training programs. I think it is going to be what we use is that currency to communicate with other professions. It's, uh, it's a substantial project. So Tell us how that even came to be, Karen.
1: Uh, It came to be because uh, Tracy Todd had been, he knew for a long time that we needed something like a handbook or some kind of major resource. And he had been in conversation with people at Wiley, Wiley Publishing, and they together came up with the idea of a handbook, uh, that that would be an important thing to help define the field, help uh, establish that narrative of of what we are. And then Tracy uh, contacted me to ask if I would take this on and we negotiated a bit because I knew it needed to have a major academic publisher. It could not be published in house at this point. It maybe in ten years could be published in house, but it needed to be published by a major academic publisher. I wished for, I pushed for uh, Wiley, yes, and and then the the uh, handbook developed out of like I first went and looked at, uh, refreshed my. I mean, looked again at all the other handbooks and all the other resources out there. There's just nothing out there at all that represents what we do. It still is the old uh, chapter on each theory. And then uh, each model, evidence-based model separately, we don't work that way. We don't think that way. We take those things and integrate them. There's a place for the pure models. We use those too, but it's, it's that next step. So I wanted some kind of platform and give authors a chance to have an authoritative voice to teach us what is known about their topic and what we need to know. What we what we know, what we kind of know, and what we need to find out and how best to think about that. And um, so that was, and the project, I mean, we were systems people, very collaborative. So my first step was to have a small meeting that MFT funded in, D- in Alexandria. And we sat there with uh, You know, notes and pieces of paper and everything else, and uh, not, you know, the electronic chalkboard. It's not a chalkboard. Working out what the table of contents, you're yeah, very technical. Uh, Shari Alarti had to help and uh, and and really draw out what we thought the table of contents was going to be. And it was the most fun conversation. Liz Wheeling, Pauline Boss, Rick Miller, Adrian Blow. I mean, uh, what's not to like? And then and
0: you have a great collection of uh, associate editors. So in that initial conversation, did you view that as? multiple volumes from the start, or did it morph into that once you start getting all those people together and putting all those ideas?
1: No, I totally, my own self, I totally pictured one volume. Are you kidding me? (laughs) And then at the end of that April meeting, that was so important, I thought, okay, two volumes. I can see that. And then it it clearly evolved. And the whole, so the next step was finding the editors. And then uh, it was a kind of a combination of developing what the nature, the content of the four volumes and the structure, as well as editors, and it evolved. Every single person, Eli, that I asked to be an editor said yes, and they said yes because they knew the project was needed. They absolutely knew it. And it was a very collaborative effort when putting the table of contents together. It evolved. It was so exciting. It was all of us thinking and talking like my dream of a field that that's what we need to do a whole lot more of. And I'm hoping that the handbook is, gonna, is going to give an impetus for that. It's not a, it's not a resource of, of okay, this is, this is it. We're done. This is a, I see it as a platform, a platform for learning, discussion for researchers for clinicians, for educators, for policymakers, like, okay, so we've got this piece, where do we go next? Like they do, again, I love astronomy. We had so much of this about the moon launch and all. They talk to each other. They share data. They puzzle. They explain where they don't know and everything, and they have some clear outcomes that they're looking at. Um, We need to have those conversations in that model. The trouble is, I'm going to skip back to something else, funding, because as an administrator, how do you protect faculty time because the faculty don't want to give up supervision they don't want to give up the clinical work and they don't want to give up teaching and yet they have to give up something in order to do the research and if you separate out the researcher from the clinical work the mft faculty are not happy and so as an administrator though you have uh, you can make a strong case for the very strong doctoral students and master students that we have the numbers of students and the impact the community-based impact of these people and that you can always engage alumni and which we've not done well enough alumni to tell the stories of what they are on the bottom le- I mean they are at the street level they are doing the work and the work is compelling and when you tell those stories policymakers listen like Bill Doherty what he's doing I mean we so many of us too anyway so going back to the book the same thing happened Eli with authors because nobody who needs to write another chapter you know the people we were talking to had lots of publications they had chapters but but all of them knew every one of them i don't think maybe maybe two people out of all we people we contacted turned us down
0: do i said yes right away
1: yeah i mean because we know the resources needed the whole project is needed a handbook and Also, that that the story hasn't been told in the way it needs to be told. And so that was so affirming. And when I would talk to people on the phone, I would say things like, when did you get the idea of systems? Or what was it like to see your first client? And we all have those amazing common experiences. And then... um, anyway, and then talk about their work. So the, that was the hard part, Eli. It was very interesting in getting people when we actually the editors and I were working with authors, is to be willing to take an authoritative stance and to say in writing what they know, what they kinda know and what they don't know. And encourage that. It's almost like a teaching approach. Explain not not teaching one down, but explaining And then being open uh, and transparent.
0: Yeah, the the format you're you're speaking to the format of of each entry or each chapter, and I, I do think it positions for like what you said to talk about where we were, tell those stories, and where we where we need to go, and what we don't know. So, I am curious now that it is done and out. Obviously, this was you've you've had the experience of being very successful editor of our gold standard journal, JMFT, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy, uh, compare that experience to this experience of being the editor of the handbook.
1: I really enjoy it, And uh, I have to tell you, the agony for me was having to write my own chapter in this handbook. And I thought, at one point, I called Joellen and I said, Joellen, don't you just want to write this chapter by yourself? Karen, you are kidding me. <laughs> you are not going to get out of this. But anyway, I, I uh, really, really like the editing piece. The difference is, I liked it in JMFT as well as obviously the handbook. The difference is in the handbook to give people the freedom to write what they know. And every, you're going to find that the chapters are different. Some of them are be, you know, like the, the volume one is on the profession. And we have a chapter on ethics. And and a future of the field, and uh, Fred P- Percy wrote a beautiful, uh, and then uh, the history of the field, and so on. But you're going to find and we couldn't have a stru- rigid structure for the chapters. Like if you look at German's you know, German and Kniskern, uh in the couple, the Germon couple handbook, which is fabulous. But you know, he had a whole set of questions, and you had to follow in order. The topics are so different. Like for example, we have a a, a chapter by. Um, uh, Tina Tim on affairs, and it's about uh, specifically about affairs. Working with people who've had an affair and they want to, they believe they want to continue and heal the relationship. Well, you're not going to find a randomized controlled trial on that, right? But then you have another, uh, you know, chapter like Alan Carr about the effectiveness of the, of uh, systemic family therapy. So there's just a, such a range and. I have to tell you, having the privilege of reading every one of the chapters, over 100 chapters, you're going to like reading them.
0: And when you say you, of course. So I mean, all you. of you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, that's what I really think is revolutionary about this project, right? This is going to be read by uh, MFT students. This is going to be read uh, by researchers. it's going to be read by people in other disciplines, again, starting the dialogue of what MFT is all about. The other thing... You were able to do is unite as you were referencing to, uh, uh, you know, most of the luminaries in our field that are still living uh, with new and emerging leaders in our field. So that I, I love that. And I love to see the, uh, the the table of context, not just of those associate editors you have, but of the authors. And again, this is one of the most projects I've been most proud to be part of Um, but I I do think it will set us forward as as a field and I mean I'd like to see this in every training program. For me
1: it's a platform for jumping off and when you read a good handbook uh, like the Handbook of Psychotherapy and Behavior Change I mean that's a high goal that's a gold standard for me in terms of a researcher on the research side but it's a platform for making you think, and it's also a resource for what's already out there and directions to go and how to think about everything. So, I, yes, I think educators, students, researchers, um, and policymakers. And, and there'll be some people who want to you know, read most of it. Other people will just pick and choose, because it's organized by topic. If you look at other handbooks, they're not organized by topic.
0: You were referencing this. Tell us again the four volumes, that the, the scope of each volume.
1: And I'd have to admit, I was not happy with thinking about four
0: <laughs> volumes. But
1: it just became so clear. So the first volume is on the profession. The second volume is on parenting, children, and adolescents. And you know our field has almost completely ignored the child and adolescent literature.
0: Which is funny because still, in, it, because most of our identified patients, where we expand the system, start uh, as a child or adolescent level and, and move from there. It is, it is ironic, kind of paradoxical.
1: Well, I don't think it's par- it is paradoxical. It is ironic, but you can see why it happened. Because, again, we got stuck in thinking we were a modality, seeing people together. And a lot of times with parent-child, the evidence-based programs are just the parent alone comes in. Well, we're systems thinkers. In reality, that doesn't bother us a bit, right? And then, uh, but you talk to somebody like Ruben Parra, like who who uses uh, an evidence-based program PMTO, Parent Management Training Oregon, um, and does research on that. Uh, yes, it's parenting, but. When somebody's in stuck, when they're coming to the groups and they're stuck, what do they do? They see the uh, mom and dad together, they see the mom together, they might see the child alone or something like that. They, they problem solve and then they go back to the, uh, you know, the standard protocol. That's how we think, how we work. And that's what we wish all of our caregivers, I wish my physician worked that way, you know? The flexibility to see different people and the flexibility to think through problems with people, not imposing some pre-existing structure. So going back, so here we have a whole volume on child and adolescent, right? If you look at the other handbooks, existing handbooks, it's not there. It is not there. In fact, I think recent family process was the first one where I even saw Marion Forgatch and Jerry Patterson's work is amazing to me. The third volume is the couple volume. The fourth one is very innovative. It's on global. Uh, health and what how we started to get the table of contents was that was to look at the United Nations data on the most severe problems, mental illness met, the, the most severe problems, uh, mental and physical across uh, all the countries in the world, and um, you know chose the one and then followed up with people. And we find people, authors in our field, systemic family therapists who are clinicians, everyone, every author in that, those four volumes, they are clinicians, yeah. and they are researchers, and it shows.
0: And I love that about them, I and I think most of them have LMFT after their name.
1: That's right. Most of them have LMFT, and many of the ones that don't who are in Europe, where they don't have that designation, even though they are completely compatible with us. What
0: I love about this project, you know, I mentioned a couple minutes ago about MFT historically farming out their work. There's nothing farmed out here. There's
1: nothing farmed out, no. And then, so volume four was the most challenging because it has a gl- more global focus, and also looking at the, at the family as a unit in terms of uh, especially getting the intergenerational piece in there. And again, you see why in the standard psychology handbooks it's so difficult to get into that, because it's hard to do an evidence-based trial when you think about how we think about multi-generational work. And you think about trauma, refugees, um, it's intergen it's, it's you know of course we all think multi multigenerationally right whether we're buying behavioral whatever sure it's our blueprint we only know it's our the blueprint the one we're in and the one exactly. we of course so that that volume i mean when i see authors i say just wait till you read the other chapters i am smiling about that i am so, smiling that, that's
0: the one um, that i am most excited to read because it's the stuff that is yeah, probably the most uh, innovative and in future thinking as far as what's going on globally and how we fit, fit into that. But I think that's that's huge. That's its own It's, that's its own volume. Um,
1: and, and people, you're not going to, I mean, it is incredible what the work that people are doing. And we, and when I mean, I say us as a field, do not know that. And these are the people. We
0: don't talk to each other.
1: We don't talk to each other and they are not the people presenting at I mean, somehow it needs to be more, we need more opportunities to focus on this at our conferences. I know,
0: wouldn't it be cool if we could do a whole conference around yes, uh, so. what you're talking about? And I don't mm. think, I mean, someone like me who uh, is an advocate for profession, because like you, I mean, this is this is where I hang my shingle. I have no other uh, discipline, professional affiliation to attach with. And I am for whatever will keep this as a standalone vital profession so this this is a huge thing and you and you and I have that that similar passion so as as we get ready to wrap up here this is you know you've you've shared a lot and I I again can't wait to to read this and digest this when you think and this is your humble but this is more of a legacy question than I have asked over the last year in the podcast I mean been associated with all this these great innovations and training and research how do you want to be remembered in the field Karen?
1: as a good mentor yeah as a good mentor that's been the most important thing for me and in a way with clients you're mentoring clients with supervision you're mentoring with editing you're mentoring but especially as mentoring students and the privilege of mentoring uh, masters and doctoral students it's just well it's just such a gift and then we often get we get to keep contact with people and see what happens next, and with clients, we have the same. You know, we get to see growth, we get to see change, we get to see. We're also upfront in a lot of pain and a lot of uh, uh, you know despair. And uh, but we have ways and means and uh, competence. And experience in how to help people through those things. And we make wonderful mentors in our field. I mean, there's no question to me, because we work the same. We work systemically. We do. Going back to the administrative part, that's another part of mentoring. And that's a way of, because we're systems thinkers, I mean, you'll see that many of us have gone into administration and departments, there are a lot of departments with MFT, uh, uh, department chairs and so on. But in terms of protecting faculty time and helping out with the research part, it's a, a systemic problem-solving, collaborative, trading off, uh, negotiating with your colleagues, negotiating with the department chair, and the department chair. Uh, if if you have a strong narrative, the chair can get resources and the administration. And that's again another reason why we need narrative, strong narratives. The biggest biggest motivator for me doing the handbook. Was that in 1975, when I started my graduate program, nobody knew what an MFT was. And now I get the same question. They'll say, what are you? And I say, I'm a marriage and family therapist. Or now I say, systemic family therapist. And uh, they'll say, are, is, is that a, are you a psychologist? So that... And that's our responsibility. It's nobody else's responsibility, right? Family physicians don't have to explain. They only see individuals when in the olden days they used to see. And we're, we're the opposite of that. We're, we're going the right direction. And the other piece is we have not taken on really the, the narrative and telling the story about how family, the family as a unit, broadly defined, is absolutely precious and basic to everything and we see we know we know inherently that's true everybody's going crazy about the the children at the borders being separated because we know what that means and i say we i mean every human being knows what that means well maybe most almost everybody and but we haven't made the case about family and the psychologists bless their hearts are having to deal with the brain because now they've reduced it to, from the individual to the brain of the individual, or you know, or genetics or whatever. And so we have to make the case, and it's a messy case, about the importance of family, no matter what.
0: Yes, I mean, I couldn't say it any better than that, and I'm not even going to try. Thank you so much for being with us today. The Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy is out now. Go and get it. It's from Wiley, and it is going to be... Um, very influential, as you've heard, this hour in moving the field forward and facilitating this very important dialogue that you and I are having today and that I hope we can keep going out and doing and making sure this profession that we love so very much will be around for the long haul. Thank you very much, Karen Wombley.
1: Thank you, Eli.
0: Eli, back with you. So concludes another installment of the AAMFT podcast. I was so happy uh, to be able to to conduct the last interview with Karen Wampler. Little did we know that that day when I sat down with her in Austin, Texas, that that would be her last uh, major interview that she'd give. She was a little nervous about doing a podcast, but her passion and uh, for the field, and certainly you can tell how excited she was about what would turn out to be her last contribution, the four-volume handbook of systemic family therapy getting ready to be released by Wiley. And you can go to Wiley.com and just type in Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy. With Karen at the helm, this is uh, a who's who as far as authors and even editors, uh, associate editors, including Rick Miller, Ryan Seedal, I'll tell you more about in a second, Lenore McQuay, my friend and colleague Adrian Blow, Mudita Restogi, and Renee Singh. Like I said, the handbook uh, is the first of its kind. Organizing material by presenting issue rather than intervention integrating the latest scholarly literature on systemic interventions focused on children, couples, and family. You'll definitely want to go and check that out. I thought I'd um, leave you with a few words from someone who Karen impacted greatly, a former student and colleague, Dr. Ryan Seidel. Ryan says, I always love to have Karen read and edit my papers. She had such a way of thinking about our field that was both broad and deep. Karen used her clarity of thought and vision for the field as the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy from 2001 through 2005. During her tenure as editor, she facilitated many important conversations with the field while also advancing the scope and research of the journal. More recently, she served as the editor-in-chief of the Handbook of Systemic Family Therapy, a four-volume work in preparation by Wiley. I remember talking with her when she was deciding whether to undertake the project She had a lofty vision of what the hand could become and what it could do for the field. I never doubted for one second that AMFT had chosen the right person to spearhead the publication. Personally, I am saddened by the passing of an incredible mentor and friend. It goes without saying that I was not ready to lose Karen, none of us were, and her incredible support and strength in my life. For as connected as she was to my professional life, following it and giving it a much-needed perspective and advice, She was just as connected to my personal life. She knew each of us and each of my children by name and regularly asked how they were doing. She always made sure to ask about my wife and made sure to send her regards. I will miss those conversations. Call it her attachment training or simply who she was, but Karen had a unique ability to make every single person with whom she interacted feel special, like the most important person in the world. I remember always feeling that with her and thinking how lucky I was. Then I would see her at social functions off to the side with a different person and overhear her talking just as sincerely and thoughtfully to them. She had the knack to connect with people. For the past couple years, I had wanted to give Karen a plaque that said, people may forget what you say and do, but they will never forget how you make them feel. To me, that represents Karen Wampler's life and what she means to me. And so many of us. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote, "Lives of great men and women all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind the footprints on the sands of time." What incredible footprints Karen has left for all of us to walk in. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, Brian Seidel. Please give us a li- drop us a line. You can reach me at info at EliGaram.com, elikara mcom Follow us on Twitter. The AMFT's tag is at the AMFT. Mine is at Dr. Eli Live. we love to hear from you. Until next time, my friends. So long, Karen, and stay systemic.